The first lesson we're going to be going over in current culture is the health and wealth gospel. This message that God provides faithfulness with health and wealth, uh, this is a teaching that's become very popular. It's permeated our churches. It doesn't matter what kind of denomination you belong to. Um, it's, it's, it's getting itself into uh, our churches. It doesn't matter if it's a church from the south or the north, the east coast or the west coast. Uh, you've probably heard messages where somebody who believes in this health and wealth gospel is a part of. I'm going to show you a few pictures and want to see if uh, you can recognize any of these individuals. So first of all, I put up some of the most uh, popular ones that you'll probably recognize. We have Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, and Benny Hinn. These are the ones that come to my mind first. Um, but here are some more as well. These might be flying under the ra radar a little bit more, um, but also take part in these teachings. Um, we have, uh, was that, Brian Houston from Hillsong. We have Bill Johnson from Bethel, uh, Rick Warren, Sid Roth. We've got Jesse Duplantis and Joseph Prince. So these, these also fall into this false teaching of prosperity, gospel, the health and wealth. Why do you think this prosperity message is so popular? I mean, think about it uh, in your own situation right now, your own circumstances. How encouraging would it be to know that if you had enough faith, God would meet your physical needs, your financial needs. Um, this is a message that people want to hear. It's very encouraging, um, but there's a problem with this. There's a, there's a danger to this message. And what's the danger to it? It's distracting us from the true gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he means to us. And then when, when health situations arise or we, we hit a financial crisis, we have this disillusionment of what we're supposed to be thinking about. Um, that, that's really the danger of this. Um, the prosperity preachers claim to present the full gospel by adding health and wealth to it. But it's, it's really doing a disservice uh, to Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Paul also uh, gave a stern warning against this in Galatians. Um, let's go ahead and look at Galatians 1, 6 through 8. Uh, feel free to have your Bibles open and, and read through your own word, but I'm also going to throw the verses up on the screen if that helps you out. But let's see what Paul had to tell the Galatians. So starting in verse 6, Paul writes, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed. So, how serious is Paul about us not changing the gospel, keeping it the true gospel? I mean, he's very serious. He says, even if an angel or anyone should change the gospel, he should be cursed. This is something that should not be done. 
So let's go ahead and take a look at what these preachers are actually teaching. So we're going to start off by looking at the health gospel. The, the philosophy on the subject of health was greatly influenced by the metaphysical mind science groups, such as Christian Science, Unity School of Christianity, and Church of Religious Science. Benny Hinn, one of the movement's most outspoken preachers, he believes God's healing power is already in us and that God's highest desire is for his church to be perfectly healthy. So first, let's look at the healing and Christ's atonement. Supporters of this teaching believe that any acknowledgement of sickness opens the door to satanic control and that medicine is a crutch for the spiritually immature. They also claim that physical healing is in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and that all diseases are healed by Christ's spiritual atonement in hell, not his physical death on the cross. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at three verses here, starting with Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is a popular verse that many of you uh, might know. It says this, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. We also have Matthew eight seventeen, which says, In order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away, our diseases. And the last verse here is 1 Peter 2.21, sorry, 2.24, and he writes, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. So what might a person conclude from these passages in relation to Christ's death and their health? Well, I mean, these passages seem to clearly state that his death is directly related to our health and what this movement is teaching is that if you are sick you must not have enough faith the lack of faith is the reason that you're sick i've got to ask the question so if somebody is terminally ill what is that concluding then it's pointing towards they must have some kind of lack of faith or small faith and this is what this movement is teaching but we're going to look more at what the Bible says in a little bit. Secondly, under the health gospel, I want to talk about healing and positive confession. Positive confession is based on the idea that words have creative power and that what people say determines, at least to some extent, everything that happens to them. In positive confession, success is generated by right thinking, right believing, and right confession. If you're not getting healed, it's because you are thinking wrong. And there are three reasons that are given to support this conclusion. Sickness and disease are spiritual. That's the first point that they like to make. Second, a true believer should never be sick. And third, negative confession produces sickness. So they're teaching that our body should be made whole and healthy because Jesus is the Savior of the body. So if you're... Uh, if you're complaining about your health or, or doubting that you can be healed, you're forfeiting what Jesus is making available to you. But here's the problem, right? So if a believer is making a positive confession but is still sick, what is he going to conclude? 
right? He's going to conclude that Jesus is either too weak to heal him or that Jesus is just uncaring. And that's going to cause some problems in their faith. So that's a little bit about the health gospel. And let's look at, secondly now, the wealth gospel. Well, economic wealth is the second major focus of the prosperity gospel. All right, they, they apply God's promises to Abraham to the church today. And they essentially believe that God has promised to make all believers rich. This wealth is initiated by faith and it's activated by seed planting. So first off, let's look at wealth initiated by faith. These false teachers, uh, they, they argue that it's our divine right as Christians to be, to be wealthy, to be rich, and it's in a direct proportion to our faith in God. They, they have a lot of proof texts that they use for these. One we're going to look at is 3 John verse 2. They're going to argue here that God, it's God's wish for us uh, to have wealth. So let's go ahead and look at 3 John verse 2. It says this, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Well, we have to look at the intent here. What is the intent of the author? What is John trying to say? Well, he's trying to encourage his readers um, by praying for them. And he's modeling for them how to, um, how to uh, genuinely love and have concern for others. And he's telling Gaius here that I, I wish you would be as healthy and wealthy physically as you are spiritually, because he was doing so well. He's saying that he wishes that would resemble his spiritual strength that he has. So it's important to look at the intent of the author when reading passages like these. Secondly, wealth is demonstrated by Christ's example. Now, this is the movement's worst heresy here. It's more apparent when we start looking at this and the incarnation of Christ. Because many of the movement's followers present Jesus, who looks remarkably like themselves. John Avanzini, for example, said on his Trinity Broadcast Network that he presents a Jesus that wears designer clothes, he resides in a big house, and is so flush with money that he needs a treasurer. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, Just because you have a treasurer, does that mean you're rich? Is that what treasurers do? Well... Not necessarily, right? A treasurer simply manages money. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're rich. Um, but anyways, Frederick Price, on his, um, at his church, he teaches that um, Jesus and his followers were wealthy. They had a lot of money. He wants his followers to be wealthy as well. And that's why he drives a Rolls Royce, because he wants to follow in Jesus' footsteps. I mean, this is the stuff that's being preached out there and taught. But listen, this idea that Jesus was wealthy is a pure fabrication. There is nothing in Scripture uh, that indicates that Jesus and his followers had a lot of money. He was born in a, a modest town to a modest family, Uh, They weren't rolling in the dough. They weren't making tons of money, right? I mean, he even told a man who was eager to follow him in Matthew that the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. So this idea 
that Jesus and his disciples were were rich and wealthy, and so then that believers in, uh, in the church need to be wealthy as well, is a pure fabrication. It's not true. The third point under the wealth gospel is wealth activated by seed planting. A prosperity theology thrives on the idea that wealth is gained, and not only in proportion to one's faith, but also in accordance to one's giving to like-minded ministries. This is referred to as seed planting. Okay, It's called seed planting, which is a concept which is essentially egocentric. The general idea is that a person reaps what he sows. The more seed faith money a person gives, the greater the return will be. Promoters of this teaching believe that when a person sows his seed money by faith, God creates an atmosphere of perpetual blessings for that person. If people will give their money to the church or the televangelist or to certain preachers, God will give them back 30, 60, or 100 times more than they gave. This teaching feeds upon an already prevailing covetous mentality. So there is some background and some of the uh, teachings that we find within the health and wealth gospel. Now it's time to put on our biblical lenses to take a look and see what the Bible actually has to say in regards to this prosperity gospel movement. This prosperity movement has swept across our country uh, like a hurricane, leaving broken hearts and broken dreams and a distrust in God. The only ones that seem to be making out from this movement are the teachers and preachers of the movement. They're the ones that are able to drive fancy cars and wear designer clothes and live in mansions. They're obviously reaping earthly rewards from this. It's sad to say that many African-American pulpits and churches have really been affected um, by this teaching. But is there an answer to this movement? What does God's word have to say about it? He absolutely has something to say about this. We can refute this message if we carefully look through God's word. We can refute and and label this as a false teaching. First, let's look at biblical truth regarding physical health. All right, these teachers of the prosperity gospel, they believe that Christ offers complete healing to humanity in this life based upon his death. But the belief that physical health is guaranteed by Christ's atoning work, there's just no evidence from that in the Bible. Believers should understand what the Bible teaches on sickness and then let that truth inform their response to it. So the first point I want to make is sickness is a result of Adam's sin. Most Christians agree with this movement's teaching of the origin of sin. Because Adam sinned back in the Garden of Eden, now all of mankind has been inflicted with a curse. Romans 8, 22-23 says this, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This curse has affected all of creation, including our bodies. So sickness, suffering, and death, it has now affected all of humankind because of Adam's willful disobedience. This curse affects us. Whether we live righteously or unrighteously, we are all sharing in this curse. Secondly, some sickness is related to sin. 
Some of our sickness is directly related to personal and corporate sin. Paul was telling the believers in the church of Corinth that their misplaced values and their pride and their unconfessed sin was what was causing them problems in their church, especially when some of them had very flippant and self-centered attitude towards the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30 says this, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So there were believers that were partaking in the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in their lives. And God was saying that, hey, you need to change this. You need to examine yourselves to see if there's sin in your life before you take the Lord's Supper. The alternative to doing this is God was causing them through discipline, uh, some of them to get sick and even die. Uh, when Paul writes that some fall asleep, that is referring to death. So because people were partaking in the Lord's Supper with sin in their life, unconfessed sin, uh, God was causing them to become sick and even die. The third point I want to make is that godly people get sick. There are several references throughout Scripture of godly people getting sick. Think of Job. Job, we're told, was a man of great faith, yet he got sick. He was covered from his feet to his head in sores. Uh, Paul reminded the Galatians of a physical ailment that continually bothered him. And Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, he had frequent stomach problems. And Paul didn't tell him to make a positive confession of his faith to heal himself. No, he gave him practical advice. 1 Timothy 5.23 says, No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Paul was telling Timothy to drink a little wine for medicinal purposes. Again, not to make uh, a positive confession. Paul also left Trophimus sick in Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20, while Epaphroditus fell ill and nearly died. We read in Philippians 2, 25-27, But I regarded it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow, Upon sorrow. Why did God allow Epaphroditus to get better? Because he was mercifully keeping Paul from having sorrow upon sorrow. I just want to mention one more time that there is no mention of positive confession here. Paul nowhere instructs believers or churches in any of his letters or his epistles to make a positive confession for their healing. It's just not found in Scripture. And then Epaphroditus is praised for his willingness to put his life uh, in danger for the cause of Christ. So we don't see anything about making this positive confession. A final point that I want to make is that God uses affliction and illness for his glory. This should be a truth that perplexes anyone who believes in this health and wealth gospel. We have at least two um, references recorded in scripture that back this up. The first is um, 
King David in Psalms 119. We presume it's King David. And he's writing about his um, affliction he's going through. And it's not only for his benefit. Let's see what King David had to say. We're going to look at Psalm 119, verse 71 and 75. Verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then if we go down to verse 75, it says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So King David is writing here and saying that it was good for him to be afflicted because it allowed him to be able to learn God's statutes and what he wanted from him. And it also provided an opportunity for God to prove his faithfulness to David. So that was one occurrence. Uh, a second one comes to mind. Um, John chapter 9, uh, Jesus healed a blind man. And there was much discussion over where this blindness came from and, and how sin played into that. Jesus made it very clear that the blindness wasn't because of the man's sin. It wasn't something that he did that caused his blindness, nor was it uh, something from his parents. It wasn't an inherited sin um, from something that they had done. The disciples were questioning him on this and asking where this sin comes from. And we find our answer in 9 verse 3. So let's take a look at that verse. Jesus answered his disciples and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. God used the healing of the blind man to put his glory on display. Obviously, the health of humanity is not a primary goal of God during this current age. A higher priority of his is accomplishing his will and, and getting his glory that's due to him. So that priority sometimes demands that believers are going to fall sick and ill. And I know that's not preferable, but it's necessary for the accomplishment of his will and for his glory. We've looked at what the Bible has to say about health. Now let's look and see what the Bible has to say about wealth. The idea that God wants all of his children, all believers everywhere, to be rich is simply not supported if we just take a look at the world around us. If we look at believers and how they have to live in developing countries, uh, it just it's a strike against this argument. It doesn't pan out. I want to show you a picture uh, from Ghana and give you an example. There are many Christians that live in Ghana, West Africa. And they are genuine in their faith. They're very passionate in their worship. They're hungry for God's word. Yet, the overwhelming majority of them live in poverty. Observing their lives, one would conclude that their poverty has absolutely nothing to do with their lack of faith. I wonder why, like this example that I gave you, when, when there's believers living in poverty across the world, why is this not used more often? to counter what these people are preaching in their prosperity gospel. I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence. But the saying comes to mind, uh, out of sight, out of mind. Because this, this isn't happening necessarily in America that much. These are happening in developing countries or third world countries. But there is evidence of people with strong faith who love God that do not have wealth. This should be an easy argument against the prosperity gospel. 
while there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth, it can become sinful if we start pursuing wealth more and more. If that becomes our aim, our goal, our desire, it can become sinful. And that's what these prosperity preachers are doing. That That's their goal. They're trying to accumulate as much wealth as possible. And the Bible gives us at least three reasons to the dangers of pursuing wealth. So let's go ahead and take a look at those. So the first one is pursuing money leads to loss of focus. If we start focusing on pursuing wealth, we're not going to have the focus on God that we should. All right, It's important to keep our focus on God. Our blessings that come from Him are all because of His mercy and His grace. But if we start focusing on our blessings and our material things over the giver of those blessings, we've, we've, we've gone off track, okay? Where our focus is not where it should be. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 10 through 14. It says this, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given to you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your hearts will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So God was telling them, he was actually warning them, listen, when you get to the promised land and when you receive the blessings that I am giving to you, don't get wrapped up in those things. Don't get caught up enjoying all the good things that I've given you that you forget about me. When we begin to start pursuing money, um, it's it's going to distance us. It's going to break our connection with God because we can't have we can't have this love of money and wealth and also love God the way we are supposed to. The second danger of pursuing money is that it breeds covetousness. In a direct response to a very covetous man, Jesus educates his uh, listeners and gives them a stern warning. We find this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus said to them, he said to his audience he was talking to, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. His stern warning is be on your guard against every form of greed. Now why is it that we think that life consists of what we have or why do we strive for that well that's the that's the world's philosophy that's what they're pushing on us that you consist of what you own and what you've been able to earn that's where your status comes from that's where your worth comes from but we know that this isn't true we are not wrapped up we not, we do not consist of our possessions here on this earth to illustrate the truth that life doesn't consist of things, Jesus told the story of a farmer who worked hard. He worked really hard his whole life. He had a real plentiful harvest. This material prosperity generated within the farmer a self-absorbed, insensitive spirit. The rich man 
being the farmer, died having no regard for God or others. God called the man a fool for pursuing goods and pointed out to him that he had left all of his possessions on earth now for someone else to own. This man was spiritually bankrupt. Pursuing money breeds covetousness that results in a pointless, worthless life with no eternal value. The third danger of pursuing money is because it creates snares and temptations for us. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. We read this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root for all sorts of evils, and some by aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Just like a shoot grows out of a root, I think all bad and evil things come from the love of money. As you have a desire to gain more and more, um, you'll start heading down further paths. Your sin will get deeper and deeper. In order to acquire more, you'll start lying. You'll start cheating. You'll start stealing things. And the problem is, we're never satisfied with how much we have. If you're trying to pursue wealth, you're never going to get to a point where you have enough to be satisfied. And that desire is going to push you further and further to sin. There's no end to it. You're caught in this endless game. You're constantly pursuing this this desire and this lust that you have for, for money and wealth, and you're never going to be able to attain it. Let's look a few verses before, uh, back in verses 6 through 8, and we read, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Why is contentment uh, the, the key ingredient to understanding true gain in this life? Well, we need to learn that we can trust God for our provisions. We can trust God to give us everything that we need in this life. And that trust is going to spill over into other areas of our lives. And it's going to spill over to uh, other decisions that we have to make in this life. That we can trust God to provide. So we need to be pursuing a relationship with God and not pursuing the love of money, the love of wealth. Don't be a fool. Don't be like that farmer who works so hard for earthly things but neglected his relationship with God. I hope you can see the need to know God's word. If you don't know the word, you could fall victim to some of these false teachings like the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth. It sounds good. They even use verses um, out of context that back what they're trying to say. But if you actually know God's word, you'll realize that this is a false teaching and it's not true. It's important to know God's word. I hope this is an encouragement to you to get to know his word better. Uh, what are some steps that you could take to do that? Maybe it's even just beginning to read his word for the first time. Daily read small sections of the word. Or maybe you are reading the word, but you know that you need to dig deeper and, and need to go into uh, a deeper study. I would encourage you, it's so important to know God's word and what it says. But with that being said, we need to have this contented trust in him. 
God wants us to trust in him. He wants us to be faithful to him. And he will accomplish his will in his timing uh, when he wants um, for his glory. Right? That's what we talked about. Uh, he will accomplish that, uh, uh, his will and his goal, and he will meet our needs. But if we start thinking that we can try to get fit God into our picture, we're, we're off track and we're mistaken. God isn't here to meet our needs. God isn't here to, or I should say, our wants. He's not here to meet all the wants and desires that we have. He's not going to answer uh, to our selfish desires. Well, you might ask, how might we know if our faith is selfish or we have selfish desires? Um, I want to go over that real quickly here at the end. Well, let's go over some evidences of a selfish faith. First off, if you have little concern for the needs of others in your prayers, okay, when you pray, think about it, when you pray, are you praying for other people? Are you praying for their needs or is it all about you? Because if it's all about you, uh, that's an indicator that you might have a selfish faith. Secondly, do you feel discontent and disappointed most of the time? If, if you're, if you're, kind of disappointed often uh, because things aren't going your way or you're not getting something you want, then you may have a selfish faith. What if you don't seek to know God's will as revealed in his word? Okay, if you're Again, if you're not reading the word to know what God's will is for your life, um, you probably have a selfish faith. You're probably trying to do things on your own. You're trying to do things in your own power, on your own timing, but you need to read God's word to understand what his will for your life is. And lastly, do you grow impatient with God? You grow impatient with him. Are you tired of waiting on his timing? And uh, you, you think he should be moving at a faster pace or he's not doing things correctly? Well, that's another sign of selfish faith. You need to talk to God about any selfishness that you see in your lives. Any of these things that pop up, talk to him about it, confront the issue, and and try to get back on track. Try to have a faith where you trust in God and his timing and to meet your needs. So now you know a little bit more about the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth that's being taught and preached all over our country. God it's not his wish necessarily for us right now to have healthy bodies and to be wealthy and rich. Instead, um, our biblical response to this current cultural issue that we have is find true value in loving and serving God, not money. Find true value in loving and serving God, not money. Don't be like the farmer. Have a relationship with God. Find value in loving Him and serving Him and doing what He wants for your life, not in the pursuit of wealth or things or money. Each lesson is going to end with a memory verse. This is a great way to get to know God's Word, uh, to memorize verses, to hide them in our hearts, to know them in our minds. is a great way to know what God wants from us. And this week's is Matthew 6 verses 20 through 21. It says, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. Thank you for joining me in this first lesson in this series of 13 going through current culture. Um, I hope it was beneficial to you. I hope you learned a lot about the uh, health and wealth gospel. And just a highlight going into next lesson, we're going to be talking about biblical economics. Now, there's three major ways to uh, organize an economy. And we're going to talk about why the free market economy is the best way, is the best system for believers to exercise their responsibility of stewardship. So I hope you join me again next week for lesson number two.